Hey, John, how are you? Good, Tiger. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm, uh, I'm grateful for your time. I'm super happy that uh, you were able to give us a little bit of your time on Friday. I know you're busy, and uh, I think we met, I believe, a month ago now. I think it was August 23rd when we came to see you at the Lightwave uh, office in uh, Virginia. And I was very impressed. I could tell you why. It's probably not the reason you would think, but um, Delaney and I were talking after the, the meeting. And actually, I was talking to Andrew, who you introduced me to. I said, John is a very unique person. And uh, I was very impressed. That's to say the least. Oh, cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I enjoyed meeting you. And I think Anybody else, I wouldn't take a call at uh, 2 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, but for you, I'm happy to do it. Appreciate it. That means a lot. Uh, we're just going to run and talk about um, Lightwave, uh, but I'm more interested to talk about you as a person because, again, a fascinating story. Growing up, we were just talking about if you played any sports, football, wrestling, and then now you're a big family guy with four kids. Um I'm curious in a lot of different directions. Uh, you know, now you're in charge of Lightwave. I uh, see you running probably close to 70, 80 offices now, and you have a very different style compared to all the other CEOs that I've seen that are running DSOs. So I'm curious, maybe if you can start and then that will work together with your intro. Um, growing up, anything that you've done as a kid, do you think it led you to the point where you're at today in your style, how you lead Lightwave? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, so I, I grew up in a small town in central New York, outside of Utica, New York, and my family owns uh, a small Italian restaurant there for over 80 years. It's something my wow. grandfather and his brothers started um, like before World War II. <clears throat> it was in our family for years. And, you know, I remember going to work with my father when I was super young and um, like I remember being five years old and being at the restaurant and my, I remember my uncle's like dunking me in the dishwater when I was a kid, you know what I mean? Um, just a really fun place to be around. And like my father was a suit, my parents, both my parents are super hard workers and, you know, seeing them run a small business taught me a lot early on about, you know, the value of hard work and like taking care of customers and like creating communities, those sorts of things. And those lessons definitely stuck with me. Um, you know, when I ended up starting my professional career. So, yeah. And how, how was it growing up in the family that owns a restaurant? It was pretty awesome. You know, like I said, I got to spend a lot of time there. I mean, this was in the 80s and 90s also. So restaurants and bars were different back then. Like I remember <clears throat> when I started bartending when I was in high school, you know, smoking was still a thing in, in bars, right? So I remember spending a lot of late nights in smoky bars, you know, but you learn a lot in that sort of environment. You know, you learn how to talk to people, you know, you learn a mm -hmm. lot about what people are like. You learn how to listen, pay attention to the room and that sort of thing. And again, you learn, I, I learned a lot about just the basics of, you know, how business operates, you know? Mm -hmm. so, and if you don't mind, what, what are the basics? What, what did you learn? Um, you know, businesses are all about people and, you know, in a business like a restaurant, if, you know, you have a, you have great employees, right. That are putting on a great product and you, you love your customers. You, you can make, you can make it work with a restaurant and that same kind of recipe, if you will, works in pretty much every business that I've been in. Right. If, um, when it, like when it comes to leadership, people make all the difference. Like that is 
definitely like the first principle that I operate off of uh, today. You know, it's like you have a great team with great people who are, uh, you, you know, know what they're doing. They have the skills and they want to do a good job. Uh, then it's just a matter of identifying who your customer is and then, you know, delivering that leadership product to those customers. And I think, you know, people and relationships are, are everything when it comes to business. And that's been true in every business that I've worked in. I've worked in now hospitality, uh, retail, a couple of different healthcare verticals, and it's all about people, man. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's true. And I, I think probably restaurants, construction are those old school industries where you really get to learn what it's like to interact with people, right? Like, and I, and I would imagine that, you know, with your dad owning the restaurant, there were a lot of people that would just come and see him. He probably knew everybody in town and it probably had some kind of weight on you as a son of somebody like who owns the restaurant. I don't know if you had to manage that part. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting point. My father was almost like a local celebrity in his community. Right. And people, Mm -hmm. people did come in to see him and, you know, are watching him work a crowd in a, in a restaurant is like watching a stand-up comedian almost when I was growing up, you know, <clears throat> that was never me really. I'm not, I'm not the big extroverted personality like that. I'm a little more introverted, but uh, I remember working behind the bar when I was a kid and people would always say, Hey, you should smile more often. You know, I'd say, I, I am smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're right. I think businesses like restaurants, construction, service, like service, I think everybody should have a service-based job at some point in their life. Um, you know, it's, first of all, it's humbling, but also, like I said, it teaches you how to talk to people. Later on, I, had, right. I, I worked in sales and um, I was a sales manager after college. I was working in uh, retail. I can tell you a little bit more about that afterwards, but um, working in a sales profession is also very useful uh, for young people. Taking on a service job or a sales job teaches you a lot of lessons that are really useful throughout, you know, a professional career. So Mm -hmm. do you ever have a moment like, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, this is the second business that, um, that I I have a chance to run. And there are moments sometimes, especially when it was the first one that you have a meeting or something happens and you decide to do something or say something to encourage people or something. And then you're like, gosh, that was, that was like 20 years ago or 15 years ago that my dad told me, like, do you ever have those moments? Yeah, for sure. And like, uh, like I was saying earlier, you know, I, I try to take a principles based approach to what everything I do, right. Rather than making decisions, you know, just in the moment or based off of habits or based off of, you know, comparisons, we try to reason to make decisions off of first principles and, you know, those are usually values-based and tried and time-tested, right? There's, I think when it comes to leadership and management, there's really nothing new under the sun. Um, every situation that I face is just some new version of a situation I've faced before. So, you know, having a clear idea of what your values are and having a clear idea of the principles that you want to lead by, I think make a big difference. And yeah, a lot of that stuff comes from your upbringing and, um, you know, for me, I've, I've done a lot of work, especially like first half of my career, or maybe the first half up until this point, um, of just like self-exploration and like trying to learn my values and my why and like try to write down those principles and decision-making frameworks and those sorts of things. And it's been time well spent because, um, you know, as, as you, you know, progress in your career, that turns into 
you know, basically your intuition or kind of your operating system for making decisions in the workplace. And, and like I said, kind of when you're using values and principles to make your decisions, it's becomes your North star. It's like a muscle memory for NBA players. Yeah. The, the more you do, the more, the more the muscle memory builds is probably the same values. And I like how you phrase a decision-making framework. Like the more you rely on that, the more it builds that muscle memory. Yeah, I'll try to look at a situation and say, okay, what what is the principle here that applies? Like we're trying to make a decision, work backwards from like what is what type of problem is this that we're trying to solve, right? And you know, when you get the the, the type of problem correct, you say, okay, well, what is the principle that that matters here, right? I think a problem a lot of managers are facing in the workplace today is there's a, a labor shortage, right? So. Um, you know, a manager may have a candidate in front of them and they're trying to make a decision on, you know, whether or not to hire this person, even though they're maybe more expensive than same type of person previous year. Right. So what what's the principle that applies to that type of a problem? Well, it's a supply and demand problem. Right. So the supply of labor is constrained. It's going to drive up prices. So it makes sense that you may have to pay more for a really good employee right now. And so um, yeah, I think people a lot of times will make the wrong decision in those sorts of situations because they're comparing, you know, geez, I don't want to pay more because, you know, it's going to impact my PL. It's just the wrong framework you're comparing to, you know, a reality that's not, that's not there anymore. Right. The principle here mm -hmm. is supply and demand and labor wages, labor and wages have gone up. You got to find another way to claw that back, but if you're going to attract good people, now you have to get out in front of those sorts of things. So. Right. Interesting. And then after a small town in New York, um, uh, I believe you go to the State University of Albany, right? Or at, at Albany. Yeah, I went to SUNY Albany for undergrad. Um, and when I graduated, I, I started in hospitality. So I worked at uh, Marriott for a little bit. I thought, you know, with a background in restaurants, I thought I'd have a career in restaurant hospitality business. And um, I was only with Marriott for about a year, and I bumped into uh, the owner of a um, mattress retailer at the time. The, the guy's name was Harry Acker. He's actually still alive today. And um, he had a basically a family retail business that had grown to be pretty big regional business. It was 250 stores at the time. Wow. And um, they were expanding into New England, which is where I was living. And um, long story short, I ended up going to work for them as a district manager. And I worked there for 10 years after that. Um, and during that time, the, the company grew from 250 stores to over 1,200, over a billion dollars in sales. And I was able to get promoted a bunch of times when I worked there. And it was, it was an amazing part of my career. I learned a ton. Um, it's kind of like me and the company had like a coming of age at the same time. The company was finding its way going from a regional to national player. And I was kind of finding my way as a professional for the first time. And it was a great experience. Wow. When I hear people say 10 years at the company, it always fascinates me. Like, because, you know, in the tech space, you see two to three years and we can talk about all day about the reasons why it's good or why it's not good. But to each its own, when I hear 10 years, what fascinates me is uh, it's probably not that for 10 years you were in the same position, right? So, like, it could be 10 years with the company, but I'm sure you changed so many different roles and you had different responsibilities and things that you had to learn. How did you, was that the case and in, in how did you manage that growth within your yeah. personal frame of like self growth. So, so I was, I was promoted 10, uh, five times in those 10 years. 
Wow. So it's like so, five different jobs within 20, five, 10 years. Five different jobs. And then within that, you know, you're moving around a lot also. So, you know, honestly, Sleepy was, Sleepy was a great company. They ended up getting purchased by um, a, a big national competitor called uh, Mattress Firm. And so that brand has kind of gone away. But um, in those years, Sleepy's was kind of ahead of its time on things like leadership development, um, having a process-based approach to the business, um, not just having a vision, but actually executing, communicating well and executing. And, you know, a lot of people were able to grow their careers in that environment because the company was growing. And so if, um, you know, if you're willing to learn and invest and work hard, you can grow right alongside the company. Uh, so it was a great experience. I think, you know, I, I remember telling people throughout my career, I still say this today, which is, you know, if you're, if you're a part of a growing company and you're challenging yourself to get better, you know, you should expect to move into a higher level role every, call it one to three years. You know, in a high growth company, it's very reasonable amount of time to expect a promotion. And then, you know, if you start growing, if it starts going beyond that after some reflection, it's not, you think it's not you that's the problem, then yeah, maybe then it's a good time to to make a change. But personally, for me, it's worked out. I mean, if I've really, this is like the third big chapter in my career. I worked in retail for you know, 10, 12 years, something like that. I worked in the veterinary space for four years. You know, you know, I've been with Lightwave uh, for two years now. But I don't, I've never really felt the need to jump around all that much because I was getting challenged kind of within the company that I was at, so. And then when essentially those 10 years were getting to the end of that tale, what, what kind of signs you started looking at? Or was it something internally that you thought, you know, you're not challenged enough or, or was there something else? Yeah. So I left retail in a time when, um, so this was what, 2016, 2017. I mean, online shopping was also already very popular at the time. But the funny thing about mattresses is up until that time, people were still buying them in person, mostly. But around that time, there were a few companies that were created. The big one was Casper that kind of mm -hmm. made buying a mattress online kind of cool. Um, and it opened up the floodgates for about a dozen copycat companies. And then it also kind of made people more comfortable buying a bed online from like Amazon. So uh, I just saw a bunch of macro shifts. And then within my own career, I think once you get to 10, 12 years with an organization, you start to have like diminishing returns, like new assignments were as challenging as they were in the past. And I wasn't learning and growing like I was earlier in my career. So those two things kind of combined. And then I had a friend that went and worked for a, uh, a veterinary company called National Veterinary Associates. And he told me about an opportunity that they had. And so I interviewed and I, I really didn't think I was going to get the job for a couple of reasons. I've, I've actually, before working at NVA, I never stepped foot in a veterinary hospital in my entire life. I, I never had a pet. I'm not really particularly passionate. I actually don't like pets, to be honest with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's um, good. And I interviewed for like six months, I think. NVA is very selective. And I remember, wow. I, I think I had 13 phone interviews before I got invited to the office uh, to interview. And then I had like a day of the panel interviews. But um, I ended up getting the offer and um, it was for a pretty cool territory. It was in Seattle, Seattle based. It was Washington State, West Coast of Canada and Alaska, which is cool geography. So um, we packed up, we moved across the country. My family and I, we moved to Seattle, which... Um, we had never been to Seattle before. I'd never been to a vet hospital before. Certainly never been to Alaska. So kind right. of started over in a new industry in a new part of the country. And 
Uh, it ended up being a great move. I, I loved my time in NBA. I learned a ton. Um, it's the first time working in a healthcare environment, first time working in like a doctor centric uh, culture. I learned a lot about hiring doctors. And um, so there were some differences, but, you know, again, the same basic leadership principle, principles applied, which um, was exciting to me. And um, yeah, that's how I ended up leaving retail and, and making a change into healthcare. If you don't mind, I'm always curious, um, when you hear somebody having a successful career, oftentimes the family gets overshadowed. And to me, I think that's like, it's everything, right? So like you can have two types of conversation. You get home and you tell your wife, we got to pack our stuff and go to Seattle or like, it's either yes or no. And, and, and I'm always curious how, and it's not, and it's not something you do once. I feel that, you know, with your family, you're constantly building that foundation that you're constantly on the same page with your significant other to make sure that when these opportunities come in, and I'm not saying like you're always thinking about it and that's not why you build it. I think it's the strong relations, strong families, the by, uh, the is allows you to take on these opportunities. And, and when you can, it's the byproduct of that. How, like, did you ever think about it that way? Or, or did you ever? Yeah. Like, I mean, my wife and I have always thought about these things as team decisions and, you know, we, we would always say it takes two votes, takes two yes votes, right? And um, I, when I finally got the offer at NVA, I f didn't think I'd be able to accept it because I didn't think there'd be any way that she would move to Seattle. Uh, I think we knew we had to move, but we, you know, we were living in Virginia at the time and Seattle was a pretty extreme move. But um, yeah, we talked about it and we talked about what was happening in retail and what I thought the future would bring and talked about why this was a good opportunity. and. To my surprise, she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we did. Um, now, when we got to Seattle, uh, my wife hated it. <laughs> I can't um, imagine. Like the weather is completely different. Uh, the weather is not bad, actually. The weather in Seattle gets a bad rap. I, I loved Seattle, first of all. And um, I loved the weather there. But I grew up in a, in a place that had even worse weather. So maybe that's why I liked it. Mm -hmm. but, um, but she didn't like it there. It's, it's hard living... Um, I mean, we were, we had already moved away from family from uh, Connecticut down to Virginia, but moving to the opposite coast is really hard because, I mean, those are those are pretty tough flights for some folks, and then just keeping in touch even like virtually is hard with time zone differences. Um, and then my wife also got pregnant with our fourth child there um, in Seattle, and pregnancy was always pretty hard on my wife. She was, uh, you know, morning sickness and those sorts of things. So. All of that kind of combined to make Seattle a pretty miserable time for her. And I think I think we were only out there about a year. And uh, about six months into that time, I remember sitting down with my boss and saying, "Hey, you know, I'm 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 here for like three to five years if 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 that's what it takes because that's kind of what I signed up for." But all things being equal, I'd rather be on the East Coast. And um, so we had that conversation. And I I thought it would probably still take a couple of years, but NBA was a fast growing company, and it. As luck would have it, a spot opened up back on the East Coast pretty quickly. And we were, we only actually lived in Seattle for a year. I think I worked out there for 18 months. I commuted for six months or something like that. So we were able to get back to Virginia way faster than we thought we would. Um, but it's a great point. I mean, I got a lot of good advice about this early in my career. I had a great mentor um, who used to work for Walmart. And he always warned me about moving too many times for work because, you know, at Walmart, all roads lead to, lead to Bentonville, Arkansas, right? And right. 
you know, he used to tell me he saw a lot of marriages fall apart in, uh, in Arkansas because people would move one too many times. And, um, I think we made a good decision to come back, you know, and I'm glad, I'm glad we did that. But, um, you know, I could definitely see how people can swing the pendulum too far in the career direction direction and, you know, make a mistake that maybe you can't undo with your family. So I think it's something really good to think about. Right. I, I relate to that a lot. Um, I'm also pretty lucky to have mentors in my life and I've, and I've been told, um, there, there are a lot of balls that you're juggling in life. And, and most of them are made out of rubber and there are very few that are made out of glass. Mm, that's good. And it's like family is one of them. Like if you drop, it's pretty bad. And so I always think about it in that, in that framework. Uh, and I was just listening to a podcast where work is always going to be there, you know, and if, if you dedicated person, especially now you're in a leadership position, you hire people, you know, what characters make, uh, what characters you're looking for, what would make a good candidate, what characters. And you know, that it's pretty much, um, impossible for you to be unemployed and things like that. So like you would always find a job. That's the, basically the point that I'm trying to make, but family is, is important. And so I'm also right now, uh, my wife is we're, we're expecting. And so I, I go and I see clients and, and, you know, we, we work with a lot of dentists. I mean, we only work with dentists, but most of them are now became friends. And if I go and see a client, uh, for a day, it all ends up with like some kind of advice on how to raise kids or how to build a family. So <laughs> I take it all. I have a notebook of these notes and advice and, and, and it's pretty fast. Yeah, that's cool. So. Hey, congratulations. Is this, is this your first or first? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, Good for we're you, a little man. late, but yeah, we're excited. Um, so from the NVA, you go into Lightwave, So, which has been a couple of years, right? If I, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Just coming up on two years now. I was very happy at NVA. I was, um, taking on interesting projects. I was kind of about to get promoted and, uh, and a recruiter called me and, um, it was a recruiter from the, the sponsor of, uh, of Lightwave. And he's like, you know, I've got this great role that we want to talk to you about. It's vice president of operations, um, at this company called Lightwave. And I was like, <clears throat> no VP of ops. I'm not really interested. I'm kind of already doing that, you know? So he's like, okay, no problem. We hung up and then a week later, he called me back and he's like, hey, I've got this great position. It's chief operating officer at Lightwave. I was like, ooh, chief operating officer. Fancy. It's like, it's the same job. You know, they just changed the title over that week. So, <laughs> yeah, um, but I came in and interviewed and um, there were a couple couple of reasons why I decided to make a, a shift. Dentistry is there are t 10 times as many dental offices as there are uh, bed hospitals, mm -hmm. you know, and as an aggregator, um, that means you know, NVA was buying, you know, consolidating, buying vet hospitals. <clears throat> that industry was in a much later stage of consolidation than dentistry was. So there's, I thought there was more runway in, in dentistry, but the real reason I made the change is, you know, it, it, it was a more senior position for me. It was a, a promotion basically outside the company, but um, I really hit it off with the leadership team. So um, Justin Jory is our founder and CEO. He's a great guy, values-based guy, super hard worker. Um, you know, He's still our CEO today and, and um, our chief dental, dental officer, Clifton Cameron. It's a phenomenal visionary and leader also. And he kind of spearheads this dentist-owned, dentist-led culture that we have. You know, we're different than other DSOs. We're a DLO, a dental leadership organization. And 
the meeting those guys and hearing the story and hearing the vision was, you know, the main reason that I decided to make a change. So like I said, it's been about two years. It's been great. That's amazing. Um, and then what was, what were the differences that you noticed in the first couple of weeks of joining Lightwave from just the oper operational organizational, um, structure? Um, yeah, coming from veterinary, um, a, a, a dental office operates very similarly to a, similarly to a vet hospital, um, in a lot of ways. So, um, so first of all, one of the, again, the main principles here is that, you know, leadership in a company like ours is local. The local leadership team is foundational to everything. Uh, in dentistry, that means, you know, at our company, it means every office has a partner, uh, a partner doctor who's like the managing dentist and a practice manager. And, you know, that team manages the office. Veterinary was the same thing. There was a managing veterinarian and a hospital manager. And so, and that, and that was the most important management team in the company and the relationship between those two people is extremely important. So that all of that was the same. Um, at the multi-site level, again, very similar, you know, you have like a regional manager, a regional director that can manage about 10 offices, plus or minus a few based on, you know, some, some variables. So structurally, the, the companies were set up very similar, similarly also, um, you know, which is why another one of the reasons why I'm so excited about Lightwave is that, you know, N NVA was, you know, 20, 25 years older uh, than Lightwave and it, it had grown to over a thousand hospitals and like $5 billion in revenue or something like that. So I see a lot of the same ingredients here, you know, culture, values, leadership, we're on a growth path. The market responding is responding favorably to it. We continue to grow those sorts of things. Uh, I, honestly, the main difference between the two um, was insurance. Um, there's no insurance companies to deal with in veterinary. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Veterinary for all intents and purposes is a cash business. There's some pet insurance, but it's not real insurance. It's not like payers you're dealing with here. So for me, the biggest learning curve was learning how to interact with payers, um, which again, has been a learning experience for me in, in veterinary, you know, you, you have a lot of influence over pricing because you don't have to check with a payer before you raise your prices. You know, dentistry is totally different. You know, you can raise your prices all you want, but if you don't renegotiate your payer fee schedules, you're not really influencing pricing. So that was like the major structural difference between the two. Mm -hmm. There's some other like personality and quirky differences between dentists and veterinarians, but, um, but generally, you know, um, the businesses have been extremely similar. Again, same basic leadership principles apply. So, Interesting. Uh, going back to the meeting that we had uh, about a month ago, one thing that I've noticed, and maybe it speaks to your upbringing through your dad's business and then working at um, the sleepies, understanding what's important for the customer and how to grow the business. What uh, I've noticed meeting DSO leaderships, like I would, we would travel to meet with people. Uh, there's some sort of like demand entitlement where we're this large DSO fly to us, see us um, only at this certain time and by this certain meeting. And then you go in the meeting and it's a long table, a lot of people. And then there's one decision maker, the CEO of a DSO that would sit and dental assistants can say what they think and everybody else, but then the, the CEO would just punch the table and be like, 
That's my decision. So when we came to see you, that was complete opposite. It was 180. You're sitting on the couch. Your team is talking, asking questions. Um, and I, I was just, I remember, remember, I think it was Tanya, right? Like keeping fingers crossed <laughs> when she had a question. Yep. So it, you're like, like, come on, ask the question. I'm afraid that you're going to forget. You're going to run out of all the, 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 the toes and stuff. And so it was a completely different uh, nature of the meeting. And that's what I talked about with Delaney and then Andrew later. And I said, this is so amazing. Like, I, I don't think I've seen that before. Uh, I'm curious, where were you always like that? Or, or can you pinpoint the, the moment in your life where you made a conscious decision to say, this is going to be my leadership style. This is how I'm going to lead. And, and were you ever at the crossroads on, on, on that decision? Um, geez. Um, so I think, I think like this idea of servant leadership has always been a part of, you know, who I am as a leader. I think, you know, part of it is rooted in values. Um, you know, I, I had a pretty, pretty humble upbringing, upbringing, um, grew up in a, in a blue collar area. Right. And I, at work, I never looked at anybody as be, being better or above anybody else. Right. In fact, as a leader, especially as, you know, my roles grew in scale, um, it became pretty clear to me, like, you know, your people on the front lines. And then that first layer of management is really where all the value is created in the company. Um, you know, the most senior people in many ways are like the least important people in the organization. You know, um, it's the, the people who are on the front lines, like it, interfacing with the customer are really doing all the work um, and generating all the value. So, you know, I just see the role of a leader as like just cultivating the, an environment where, you know, the most talented people want to be there. And those people are empowered and like obstacles are removed. Um, and then you just kind of stay out of their way and like, you know, generally like, you know, great people will do great things. Um, so, I mean, yeah, part of it's rooted in values, part of it's rooted in my upbringing, but also it's, it's kind of just like a, a pragmatic approach. Like if you want to execute and get results, um, you know, the crowd is always going to be smarter than like the person, like to your point, sitting in a boardroom, pounding the table. So, um, yeah, and, and that's actually why I really like your product and like you didn't tell me to say this and I don't want to turn this into a commercial for you either, but uh, <laughs> your product was built for the person that is, you know, at the very front lines of ordering, right? It's built for the, and I, I loved your story about how you spent time in the offices and, and kind of saw how people were doing ordering and that sort of thing. And like said, that, okay, this is, we can, we can, we can help here. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's built for the person that's doing the ordering. It's not built for, you know, the chief operating officer to get, you know, some dashboard or something with more analytics and numbers on it, right? It's built to kind of enable and empower the person doing the ordering to make really good and smart decisions, um, you know, which ultimately saves the business money that it can invest in its people and growth, which I think is, is awesome. Um, yeah. And then I think it also empowers that frontline of management also, which again, is super important. So you got, you know, very frontline of the business, you have an associate and a customer interfacing, and then you've got that first line of supervision is extremely important. So for us, in this case, it's the practice manager. And so I like your software because it creates some structure and accountability, you know, for that practice manager that 
doesn't require a lot of time and effort. Uh, it just kind of on is on autopilot and like the exceptions get pushed to the practice manager. So that's why I think, I think the product is brilliant and it's, it's spreading like wildfire within our organization. We have almost 80 offices now. And I, I personally haven't really told any offices to switch to Zen. I mean, I wouldn't tell them to do that. I mean, I'd maybe make a recommendation and say, Hey, you should maybe take a look at this. And that's really all we've done. And it's, I think, I think we're in like 40 offices or something like that now. And I think we'll probably that's be at right 60 right. by the end of the year. And it's just spreading organically through the company, which is to me, super exciting. Cause it means, you know, your customer who again is that orderer and the practice manager, I think uh, loves the product, you know, and like they're signing up and like just using it without, someone like me saying like, Hey, this is the new supplies platform that we're ordering platform that we're going to be using, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and that's back to, back to my point about your leadership style. Um, I guess that's where we certain in a certain way, we got a bad taste, um, of working with the, um, DSOs, our original product, it was in exact same way. Um, when we built the product for 12 location group, uh, but we started with one office, the largest office. And so it was important to get the feedback. And, and now when we talk about how do we want to grow, what, what's important for us, it's, I resonate with what you said is, you know, it, it starts with a servant leadership style is in who do we want to serve? You know, and I think the person who is a dental assistant, we always call her Susan, say Susan, um, she needs help. I mean, there's a day when I was talking and I said, dental assistants have a lot to do. And I realized that I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means a lot to do. So I decided to spend a full day at the office, but literally count every single thing that the dental assistant would do. And so from opening a cabinet, taking the tray out, putting the tray on a countertop, that's three tasks. And so we counted every single task they've done. And it was something like 3,970 tasks in one day. Wow. So it's like, imagine how much they got to do a lot of it on autopilot, but then throw ordering on top of that or inventory on top of that. And it, it just becomes, it becomes a lot. So we, we identified that pretty, pretty early and then decided that that's our focus group. That's what we're going to build a product for. So that that's going to be our focus moving forward. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I, I think about my role the same way. I think about who's the customer, right? Who is it that, that we're serving? Um, you know, for us, the dentists are our, our core customer, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially our partner doctors, right? That's, they're the product of our whole dental leadership organization, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the customer of our whole uh, dental, dental leadership organization. You know, and they all have a partner, a practice manager who, who helps them get, get things done, right? The partner doctor is kind of a visionary. The practice manager is an integrator, a doer, right? Um, yeah, they're our customer, and you know, we we think about that really with everything that we do. Like, how can we, how can we take better care of the customer? How can we enable them more to do their jobs? So, same approach mm -hmm. here. You know, I'm curious to see how do you split your time between what's urgent today and what could be important in a year in your current role, because I feel like you're now at the position where a lot of what you do is going to be like long-term things, very, very important long-term things. And that, that, I'm curious, how do you balance the time? Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, 
I think about this a lot. I've been intentional about it. I think like I remember anytime I start a new role, like some people talk about low hanging fruit and I've mm -hmm. never been a low hanging fruit guy. I actually kind of hate the cliche. Um, I think about foundational work. Like what is the like stuff that to your point, like maybe it takes you a long time to get a return on it. But if you don't have your foundation built, you know, you can do all these kind of short term, either firefighting or quick win type things and they won't hold up. They won't last, you know, so leadership is foundational to everything that we do here. So, you know, for an office, we think about, again, getting the right partnering with the right partner doctor, getting the right practice manager in place, getting them the tools that they need to do their job. And when you get local leadership, right, that's the foundation for all the growth at the office. And, and when you get that wrong, there's no amount of low hanging fruit or quick wins that you can do there that will ever work. Because, you know, if you have a leadership problem at an office, you've, you've got a, a major root cause issue that's going to cause all sorts of other problems. So it's the same kind of same principle in my role is, you know, when I started with Lightwave, it was foundational work. Um, at the time, I was only supporting our field ops team, which is, you know, our team of directors and now a VP that directly support the offices. So um, we had some open spots, so getting the right people into those roles, training and developing them, and then pulling that team together and creating a team culture was something that I spent like, I don't know, maybe the first six months of my time here with. And like, and today that team is like phenomenal. We have this phenomenal team of field operators. They have like a whole subculture. They have a, a nickname within our organization called the Rough Riders. <laughs> um kind of a monster i think i've had some part in creating um but they're just phenomenal like go-getters like drivers they own it like they take care of the practices they solve problems you know uh people who really care right and like we have a phenomenal team here and, and that took a long time and it took a lot of effort and like a lot of get-togethers and that sort of thing to to build that and there was like tons of, sh of short-term quick win low-hanging fruit stuff that we could have done but you know, that work has paid off, you know, dividends since then, because, you know, the foundation is there. Right. And so I apply that same principle to all the different verticals I support today. And so today I'm supporting also our talent acquisition team, our marketing team, RevCycle and events, and all of them are trying to build like a best in class function um, for the organization, ultimately for our customers. And many of them are already there and the rest of them are on the path. I think, just to give an example, our revenue cycle team is going through some transition right now, you know, building that foundation. So we're insourcing everything. So we're bringing uh, credentialing and payer ops in-house, which involves like getting software and like transferring all of your data. In. And it's really difficult. It's really hard and you don't really get a quick win out of it, but it's the foundation that we're going to build that function. And uh, on over the next several years, we want to have you know the best revenue cycle management uh, function in all of dentistry. And I think we'll get there. But you got to do the hard foundational work first. So, I have a lot of follow-ups. Um, <laughs> out of just my own curiosity, in order to do long-term foundational stuff, you got to be able to communicate that to the board or investors and other people that are involved in the vision that you're trying to build. And so, and I think that's the key role for your position is to be able to understand what's the long-term need and how to get everybody's buy-in. And I'm curious, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, 
you know, my experience, you know, we've, we have a phenomenal board, great investors. Um, our, our sponsors, a company called Alpine, they've been with us since day one. They're, they're phenomenal. They're, they're great. And I think, I think like one important skill as you transition from like, um, a more junior management career to a more executive management career is learning how to tell the story, um, especially up the organization. Because, you know, if, if, you know, the customers in the office, our customer again is in our offices. Um, you still have to be able to tell the story to investors and the board. So you have to frame these narratives in a way that makes sense to them and helps them, helps them understand like the vision. Right. So uh, I've had some great mentors, you know, for this skill, telling the story or telling the narrative. I've had a lot of practice at it too over the years, but um, you know, it is a skill. And, you know, again, when that rev cycle story that I just told you probably made pretty good sense to you and it sounds like the right thing to do, you know, and our, our board agrees and like, they understand that there's, um, you know, time that's involved in that. Right. And so if I can set the right expect, here's why we're doing it, right. Here's the logic behind it. Here's the business case for it in the future and like expected returns. And, Here's about how long we think it's going to take. I think when you frame it in the right way, you know, you can, you can push your agenda forward with those sorts of groups and audiences, you know, boards, investors, those sorts of things. Not always, like sometimes it's not the right time. You can make the best case possible and it's not the right time. And then you try something else. So. Right. Right. And, and on top of that, you're, you're still a human being with, with, you know, your own set of emotions and things like that. I'm, I'm curious uh like how do you deal with stress one more time so yeah how, how do you deal with stress oh how do i deal with stress oh geez um i don't know <laughs> you'd have to ask you have to ask probably my wife and kids and, and my team generally pretty well but not always um we did a cool exercise as a team last year we did this like group personality test thing um we used um I don't know if you know who Ray Dalio is, he's got, mm -hmm. he's a big hedge fund guy. He has a bunch of self-help yep. books. Um, yep. they, he has this personality test, uh, thing called principles. Mm -hmm. You, I think principles, you, and then there's a group one called principles us. So we all took it as a team and it measures, you know, individual and team personalities across all these different dynamics. And one of them is like volatility or something like that. And like the rest of the team is all like super calm and like good at handling stress. And then there was me like all the way at the other end of the spectrum. Or I could be, I can have a pretty volatile uh, personality. So that takes a little getting used to. Um, Were you surprised when you saw that? Um, I think I was in denial. And then I was like, yeah, you know what? That's right. I can, I can have strong reactions. I mean, I think, you know, your weaknesses aren't the opposite of your strengths. Sometimes your strengths apply too much. And I'm a very passionate and animated person. And like, um, so yeah, in times of high stress, I can have, I'm now aware of this, that I can have, you know, big reactions and going through that exercise as a team was super helpful because the team also kind of gets my process now. Right. So they know that sometimes I need to have my, uh, my temper tantrum and then take a minute to sleep on it and then come back and then we could talk about it again the next day. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, I do, um, I do have healthy ways of dealing with stress though. I think for me, exercise has always been like the way that I 
positively uh, discharge, you know, negative energy. So I love walking. And, you know, one thing I've done over the past, you know, a couple of years since COVID where, you know, these days I'll have at least one work from home day a week. Um, I'll, I'll stack like a bunch of calls in a row that I can take for my cell and I'll walk while I'm, while I'm talking to them. So I have this like six mile loop in my neighborhood and I'll, I'll take like three or four half hour calls um, and just walk while I'm taking them. And um, I, I love that. It's a great way to get rid of stress. But I, I do think you have to be intentional about it. And we, I talk about this in my teams a lot. We, everybody in our organization has a one-on-one -on -one every week with their boss. And so um, the way we structure those, it's like the employee's time, like the direct reports time to talk about whatever they want to talk about. And so. Well, every you know, week. It, yeah. So that, so like the regionals will do this with their practice managers. And a lot of the practice managers are, you know, venting, sharing problems, that sort of thing. And then the regional has to internalize that, all that negative energy. And then I would have my one-on-one -on -one days and I'd have maybe eight regionals in a row. And I now have a VP who helps with this, which is phenomenal. But uh, I would then, they would, then they would vent and share all that negative energy with me. So it comes now it's now I, now I have it. Right. So what do I do with that negative energy? Like the wrong thing to do is to, to go home and then give it to your spouse or to your, to your kids. Right. The right, right thing to do is take a walk, right. Or go to the gym, but find a way to discharge that. And I think being aware of those sorts of things helps. That's where the pet might be helpful <laughs> to get a dog. Maybe, or maybe that's more stress. I don't know. You know, it's something that people don't typically talk about before I started this company. I don't think anybody much, like, I know people talk outside, but when you're in your own bubble, there's not that many people that will say, hey, it's going to be stressful and stuff. Like, you all, we all assume that, but, and then one of, uh, one of my uh, advisors and mentors, uh, he said, you got to, you got to find a sport, but you got to find a sport that takes all of your attention. So, like, running is great, but when I run, I still think about the business. Right. So I, um, before COVID, I started playing hockey and I always wanted to. Oh, cool. Yeah. And now we moved to Austin and I found the local league and joined. And I can tell you just like we did um, the quarterly performance reviews with the, with the team and the people that report to me, they all noticed that I became a lot more manageable, I would say, <laughs> at the moments because, you know, there are moments, especially... If you're launching a product, it can get stressful. Uh, but I also enjoy it personally because once you're in the ice, I'm a very different person for some reason. Like I would go and punch somebody on behalf of my team. So if somebody, you know, checks my team member and or teammate, then you go after you. You try to do things, and and it's it's amazing. That's like a, for an hour and a half, your entire focus is just this one thing. That's all. You don't think about anything else. Yeah, I love that. It's great. It's a great uh, call out, you know, to have something that absorbs you 100%. For years, I did jujitsu. I did jujitsu for probably about five or six years. Wow. Only recently kind of hung it up. But yeah, that's something that you can't be thinking about work when someone's trying to choke you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. That's not good. What what belt did you get to? Like, per I got to a purple belt in jujitsu. Purple belt. That's amazing. Well, um, I was told to start that too. I haven't, haven't done that yet. Um, but maybe I'll do that in the future. Jiu-Jitsu over 40 can be hard. So I think a lot of injuries, being hurt all the time, you know, showing up to work hunched over or with a black eye, you know, is um, 
gets a little old at some point. So right, a lot now of explaining I've, you need to do. Yeah, now I'm, my exercise is walking around the neighborhood at a leisurely pace. So maybe yeah. you're right. I need a little more intensity in my exercise routine. We'll see. Yeah, and you know, it's actually another thing that I've noticed. Um, we always try to be intentional about our uh, culture, and especially when it comes to hiring. Um, so we have a, um, a section in any job offers that we put out and then in an employee handbook that we hire adults. And we explain what we mean by that. So like, it may sound funny or foolish, but hiring adults means you don't ask when your day starts and when your day ends. Yeah. You don't ask for, hey, can I do this and can you do that? Like you do things that are important to you. And so when I started playing hockey, I put it in my calendar. It's at 1030 a.m. on Thursday morning that I have a practice, like, like it says hockey practice, so anybody can see it going into the calendars. And then at first I was like, maybe I should, but like, no, it goes perfectly along with our culture that we set. And so sometimes people will say, you play hockey in the middle of the day? I said, yeah, and primarily I wanna show the team that it's it's their responsibility to manage their schedules. So if, if it's important, that's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I think that's right, I mean, you don't, I mean, I, people used to talk about work-life balance a lot. I don't know if that's as popular as it was like 10 years ago or something like that, but it, it always seemed odd to me because you don't, there's, you don't really like get a work life and then a life life. You just get your life, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, just allowing your people the freedom to get the job done, get results, but like fit, fit everything in that they want to fit in, manage all their priorities. I mean, everybody has a lot going on outside of work, inside of work, you know, and like keeping everything moving in the right direction is really hard and it's, it's a juggling act and it's balancing. So giving people the permission to do that and leading by example is really cool. So mm -hmm. can we stop on this point for a second? I love the sure. subject work-life balance. And I feel like you have your own perspective on this and I can share mine as well. Like, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, you have like these different dimensions in your life. You have like uh, your family, you know, your marriage, your financial situation, uh, you know, maybe religion for some people, social aspects, right? And then your health. Then um, you have your professional uh, aspect or dimension, right? And like, I don't know if I've ever had a time where I was great in all of them at the same time, right? So mm -hmm. I, Kind of think of it like spinning plates a little bit today. You know, it's like you can get a few of them moving really well. And then when you do, like, there's some getting wobbly on the other side. Um, and I think, like, you know, based on the se different seasons in your life, like, you'll prioritize, um, you know, different aspects, right? So for me right now, um, it's a super busy and engaging season at work. Like where there's a lot of exciting stuff happening at work that's really consuming a lot of my time and attention. And that's what I'm optimizing for, right? Yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily optimizing for my health right now. <laughs> I've put on a couple of pounds, right? I'm not doing the intense exercise. Like I'm lucky if I get a walk in a couple of times a week, right? So that's just the season though, you know? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, maybe those things change, like the priorities change, right? You'll You'll find, you know, one part of your life gets too far out of balance and you have to kind of reprioritize, um, you know, and like I said, I've put on a few pounds. So maybe that that time is getting pretty close where I need to kind of reprioritize my health a little bit, but that's how I phrase it anyway. I, I don't tell people that I'm gaining weight. I say I'm not presently optimizing for health. <laughs> right. Right. On purpose. 
<laughs> that's, that's a but great I, way. I don't think anybody's it. perfect across all those different dimensions. So I think part of it is like people just have to um, give themselves a little grace and be like, hey, nobody's perfect. You're never going to be perfect in all these different areas. Everybody's juggling. And like, even if it appears someone's got everything together, trust me, they don't. You know, um, it's impossible to be perfect across all those different dimensions. So that's such a good point. One of my mentors told me, uh, hey, Tiger, and nobody at the end of their life uh, can release a book called My Perfect Life. Right. And it, it, I didn't get it in the beginning. First, I didn't think about life as like some thing that could end at some point. So, But then now, once I get older, I, I do think that way as well. And, and back to that same uh, advice, um, one of the doctors told me, I think three weeks ago, um, we sat down and he said, just remember one thing about the kids. It's like, your kids are not going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. Just deal with it and just enjoy it. It's good advice. I'm like, wow. Okay. You know, it's interesting. Uh, on a, on a, on a work-life balance, I struggle sometimes with my team, uh, talking about the work-life balance. And I say, my perspective on that is, uh, similar to what you said, depends on the season of life. It's also what what do you want to accomplish as a goal? I don't I, w- I don't want to put the work in a, in the black box and call it's bad. Or it's out of balance. It could be out of balance simply because you're trying to get somewhere in your life, because you want to provide a different lifestyle, a different financial stability to your family, and there's nothing wrong with that. And and it could take it consume all of your time right now to get to that level. You know, once you're at that level, you can rebalance things a little bit. And so it's a constant struggle. I mean, it's a constant, not even struggle, but the, the pursuit of, of that balance. But the, not Yeah, it's a trade-off. I, it's a great point. I think, you know, some advice I've given to more junior folks is that, that you know, want to get promoted, for example, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's useful to think, what are you willing to give up to get what you want? Because, you know, there's nothing that's for free, right? And it's like... Uh, at the very least, there's an energy cost, right, that you have to spend or invest to, you know, break through to a different level, you know, and like, again, I've had been fortunate to get, have a lot of great opportunities, get promoted, take on cool jobs and like, but like every one of them was a question mark. And like, I had to work super hard for a period of time to, you know, achieve that goal, you know, um, so I think that's, I think, I think you're right there, right? Like, um, work-life balance doesn't always mean like work less and just, you know, prioritize leisure. You know, it's like, like I said, I'm working probably more than I ever have right now, but I'm getting a lot of fulfillment out of it because I'm engaged. I'm excited. Like we're achieving cool stuff as a company together. It's a great culture. And like, I love spending time on that right now, you know? So that's amazing. I also I think, probably- you know, where you work for a growth company, you're kind of signing up for that a little bit. Also, when you, when a company's in growth mode, it, you know, growth, um, is not a given, like it takes energy. So I think if people are looking for something that has, you know, more, you know, time for like leisure and time away from work and limited hours and like nine to five and like punch the clock and that's it, then growth company might not be the best fit because, you know, the company is trying to achieve something. So the company is like this collective high energy output thing that's happening. Right. So. Yeah. And, and I think to your point too, it's, 
it's rare to find companies like that. Like a lot of people want to say that they're high growth companies, but I think it's rare. Like a lot of companies would stick to confidence versus growth because growth is change and not that many companies are built for change. Um, and it, it takes a discipline, I think, from what you mentioned, uh, to find the right company for yourself. Because then you're just blaming the company when you should really blame yourself if you join the wrong team uh, that doesn't fulfill your interests. And there's nobody to blame to say you want a life or you want to work, where, where's your balance lies. So it's on a person to find the right fit. And obviously it's on the company to properly communicate what they're going after. But if they've done it, then it's on a person when, when they're joining the team. Yeah, right on. Yeah, there's a lot about it. Um, I think HR is, is fascinating. I could talk for another hour with you, uh, but I think I think we can only we can only do an hour for now. And I really hope to to bring you back at some point and share more excitement. So I want to reserve that opportunity to talk to you in the future. So I don't want to take a lot of your time right now. Yeah, I'd love that. This is my uh, my first podcast. I'm a podcast consumer but I've never been on one before. So this was a lot of fun. Thanks for the this opportunity. Awesome. And you're ready. It. You had the mic and everything ready to go. So oh, yeah, I got like a whole production set up here and try to, you know, look good for you today. So that's amazing. That's cool. Thank you, John. Again, I really appreciate it. Uh, we are very excited to continue working with you and build the relationship and support your offices in any way we can. And we're super grateful for the opportunity. And on a personal side, uh, I would love to continue the relationship as friends and, you know, you're building company, we're building the company, I'm building the company, and there's a lot that I can learn from you. So it would be great to continue the, the, the friendship. Yeah, let's do it, man. That sounds great. That's amazing. Thanks so much. All right. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Thank you. See ya.